Why in the world would a person need an idol when they have the eternally existent true God who paid the ultimate and infinite price to prove his eternal love when they have him right there in their presence, seated on a throne, living in their heart? Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is the the one truth that we can count on on planet Earth. Sometimes we're in error, we're wrong. Sometimes we make bad judgments. Sometimes we deceive ourselves or we're deceived. And we don't walk in the truth for one reason or another. But your word is true. You can't lie, you wouldn't lie. You're a holy God. You speak the truth every single time. And so we give you the honor and the praise for the character that you possess that that finds its source in the living God. And that truth is what we look to today. Briefly, even shallowly. But we look to your word, Lord, to understand the truth so that we can give you the honor and the praise and the glory that you deserve, looking in in hope of maturing ourselves to be more stable, to be more sure of our decisions, to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand these things, Lord, that we might stand sure and that we might give you the glory that your name deserves, that you deserve. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name and for his glory. Amen. The message that we're going to have, that we have today is, uh, it's actually episode 31 from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25 with a focus on verse 23 and the title being the redeemed body. So beginning in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Romans 8, 18 to 25, and verse 23, our main verse, which is, and not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons to the redemption of our body. Amen. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. We, I mean, did you catch that verse, how the apostle repeats for emphasis the idea that not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, 
waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You know, built into every human being is the ability to mature. I mean, let's face it, you know, the, the hormones kick in as we get older. You know, as we move toward independence, they help us in that. At puberty, the desire to reproduce arises, which is in the plan of God, as in Genesis chapter 1, go forth, multiply, fill the earth, was the directive. All human beings understand that desire. As the apostle talks to us out of Romans 8, which we considered last week, that due to the fall of mankind into sin, the, uh, the human race was subjected to futility, which means we all became slaves of corruption. Everything is decaying, it's, it's uh, being corrupted, it's dying, it's, and sin within our hearts separated us from God, who alone is the source of eternal life, holy perfection, so that uh, as such, since we are separated from him, we die. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death, and separation from God is, well, it's not eternal life. God, however, in his infinite mercy and grace, made a way for man to be free from the corruption and death through the offering of his son as a substitute to satisfy God's need for justice. Justice is the need of any moral being to rectify that which is wrong or morally evil. Only evil beings see no need to pay a price for wickedness, which is why we don't look to ourselves immediately, and actually without the help of Christ we don't know at all, in, in truth, the way we need to, look at ourselves as sinners. And I've never really asked a person, well, you know, are you deserving of hell? And, well, I mean, I don't, I never murdered anybody, you know. That's the, the tendency in this human nature is to deceive ourselves about how we really are. But freedom is offered to those who deserve righteous punishment. We read about this rectification by the words, quote, unquote, the freedom of the glory of the children of God in our text today. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation desires something better than suffering and death. And sin is a bondage to sin. There's only freedom when we obey God which is definitely a huge part of this present life, which is sin and death and suffering. All people suffer in many ways, and all people and animals die. The apostle continues by telling us, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In childbirth, the human being goes from one kind of existence, we all realize this, even though we don't remember when it happened to us, within the womb of its mother to an entirely different kind of existence, which we all understand as a separate form kind of life when we're made independent from our, our mother's womb. It's safe, it's warm, it's what it needs to be, and then we're set free from that water bondage that we're in, so to speak, which is also safety, and we're set free to live life as we understand it outside the womb uh, as independent people. As we mature, as we grow older, as we learn, and we, we, I mean, the growth is amazing. So it is that all creation is awaiting a different kind of existence, which is very much different than all sinful mankind knows in this life, this experience. This is like, it's not like being in the womb because it's not safe like that, although it always has the potential for something worse. Mother, God forbid, is in an accident or something or contracts some awful disease. And the element is there, but you know, now we, we live kind of in that similar way, but there's a redemption coming. There's a transition, a transformation that's going to make what the womb to this life seem like not much of a difference by comparison. There are two kinds of existence as recorded in the scriptures we're going to look at right here, right now. The first we find in Revelation chapter 20, 
verses 11 through 15. And that's, that is two existences yet future. The first one, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, tells us this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So you get this present heaven and earth, as we understand it, life on this globe that's spinning in space, and then you have space and the space of the stars. Well, the time is coming when all the souls that have ever existed, where are they, wherever they are now, either in, in life or in death, those, say, those souls are raised and put in a place before the great white throne of God. At that time, the heaven that we now know, the, the galaxies and the earth, it says they, they go out of existence. There's no place found for them. They're just gone. There's, they implode. They're just put out of existence by the same power that's, that created them into existence. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. He saw the dead raised to life, given a new body, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to their deeds. So wherever the dead are, whether it's in, in Hades, if it's in the sea, planted in the in the earth itself, the bodies we're talking about, they're raised. And men are fitted with new bodies, fitted for what is to come. Then, in verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is what we know as, as hell. The dead are raised. They're judged according to their deeds, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone's present, and the dead, and those in, in, from hell, are cast into the lake of fire. These are not my words, this is God's word. I mean, these poor people originally made in the image of God, separated from him through sin, will live their lives subject to, to futility. They lived all their lives subject to futility. What, what does that mean? Well, life means nothing for the person who lives apart from God. There can be no meaning in life apart from God's plan and particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only futility in life, like, what's the meaning? This is just, it ends in death. We all know it ends in death. We don't see any 300-year-old people walking the earth. I mean, there's no, not many hundred, there's nobody 150 years old living. All people go. I was just reading a magazine today, and the, the, the star, the man who headed a, that article, you know, just couldn't believe he was in his 60s and he was in the last stage of his life. You know, it goes so fast. And we all know it, it's coming to an end. Nobody gets out of this life alive. There can be no meaning. Now, not only futility in life, but sinners are enslaved to corruption. The way of life is corrupt. We sin. Our, our leaders, we, we understand what happens with power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is the saying. And, and what that basically means is that, you know, it, it's all about corruption. Whether it's in the soul and the heart and the mind, the decisions we make, to one degree or another, there's, there's corruption. And it, it ends up in the corruption of the body when we stick it in the ground dead and it decays. Corruption is the true, but only is is true, but only concerning the fallen creation. What's and what I mean by that is God is absolutely powerful and absolutely incorruptible. And we can say that power corrupts, but 
Power does not corrupt God in any way. And because of that, he's, he's holy and he's just. Man, however, is corrupt in character and soul and he reaps the consequences in his corrupt body. It dies. And his soul is kept in waiting until the resurrection of his new body that will withstand the punishments of eternity. I know this is hard stuff. But we have to speak the truth. And we're talking about the corruption of our body and this is the reason why. Now, however, and this is the good side, there is a second kind of existence to be found, which is yet future, in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. I'm just going to look at part of what the Scripture says about the future kingdom. We don't have time for more. But this is Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw... This is after the judgment. See, judgment, which is to come, is uh, going to take place so that people will fully understand why God's doing what he's doing. But for those who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, who have followed the plan of salvation laid out, whether it's prior to Christ or after Christ, those who are hoping in Christ to come, those who, who believe in Christ who came, the, the, the faith there in that sets a whole different existence in place. And so God goes into explaining in some detail what that second existence is like. But it's for those whose judgment already fell upon the Son of God. The judgment hadn't fallen if it hasn't fallen on Christ in place of a person, well, then when that person dies, they, they understand, maybe they don't understand, judgment's yet to come, that they, they're in, a, in an existence they don't want to be in. And an existence that will yet to be, which will be the same, only judgment will have passed and there'll be no solution. No solution. The solution is now. If you're listening to this, the solution is now for you if you haven't committed already. Once this passes, you know, you may be too hard at heart or in mind to receive what's being said. So here's the existence that you want, as in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I think the clue there is that it's not a water world. It's different. I don't, I haven't even seen it. And there really isn't much description. More about the city. But as far as the physical earth, it's new and it, there's no sea there. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the city is being pictured before us as if it were a bride for her husband. And then verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now let us begin by understanding that in Revelation there is more said about what life is not like than what it is like, as in verse 7 and 8 from chapter 21. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So to tell us what kind of people will inherit, will inherit and inhabit the new world, he tells us what we who won't be there. It's like speaking kind of from the negative. 
Here he's warning. Here's the warning. We all sin and we all, we're all bad, evil, and detestable in God's sight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wise men always, always begin with the knowledge that they are evil. Heaven is filled with overcomers. That's right, people who overcome because their life has been replaced, filled, but still they're, they're, they own even though it is governed and ruled and empowered by Jesus Christ. Heaven is filled with overcomers because their life has been filled with the power to live an overcoming life. See, in heaven and eternity there are no cowards. That's what it says. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave in America, but not like heaven. In heaven, there are no cowards. I mean, not even one. There's no cowards there. So, by saying there's no cowards there, what do you have? You have brave people there. You have courageous people in heaven. What do you need courage for? Well, you need courage right now. You need courage to be a a lamb to the slaughter in a world that's wicked. And everywhere you turn, I mean, there's there's death is staring you in the face. Whether it's disease or it's a war or it's a thief coming to the house. I mean... You know, we, we think, you know, we're all powerful, particularly, you know, big men. But we live in a, certainly in a day when it only takes a bullet. And anybody can pull a trigger. I mean, I'm just laying out that in this life, it takes, it takes, it takes courage. It takes courage to be a Christian. I mean, Christians and Jews, nobody's been persecuted in, in the world like them. They take first place uh, when it comes to persecution and death. In heaven, there are no unbelievers. Everyone without exception believes in God, and I mean infinitely more than they believe in themselves. That's why uh, we, we read there's no unbelieving in heaven. Only believers. In heaven there are no uh, abominable, that is, to God. The eternal creator, the one in whom is eternal life, he has always been, he takes power and existence to a level we cannot comprehend. He abhors, loathes, detests, is a good word, no one in heaven. Abominable, detestable, loathsome, don't exist in heaven. God is pleased with everyone who's there. Why? Because of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. On the part of all who live there, every single person who believes there, lives there is a believer, and he's a believer in the death of his son, and for this reason, when he sees this, the person, he sees Jesus. And the way he loves Jesus, he loves the people who are there. They're no detestable people. They're they're only people who give God the same feeling, the same assurance of the holiness of the Son, which is absolute and perfect and infinite. And so when he sees those who live there, that's what he sees. No one is detestable. In heaven, we're told there are no murderers. No murderers are going to be there. Let's remember that Jesus says it's not those who murder by the physical deed that is murderers only, but those who hate, where it's hidden in the heart. In heaven, nothing will be hidden. Nothing ever is hidden from God, and there will be no hate in heaven. Everything is like clear glass. When, when, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, I mean, it's clear. There's no walls. Like you just see through the whole thing. 1,500 miles in, in, in every direction. You know, up, down, sideways, across. 1,500 miles. Huge. Glass. Just clear glass. I don't know what it's made out of, but it's clear. That's the picture we have. As incomprehensible as it is living in this present world, in the next, 
There will only be perfect and all-encompassing love. No hate at all. God doesn't hate us. He's not detested by us. And we love one another. And we love God. I mean, it's love in every direction. In every direction. One another towards God, God towards us. It's all love. And perfect love. No resentment, no jealousy. I mean, nothing bad, nothing evil. Why wouldn't anyone want to go there? That's a question we, we have to answer. Or we should answer if we can answer. In heaven, there will be no sexually immoral person. No dirty jokes in heaven. No slurs. No, no, no I don't even know if there's going to be sex in heaven. I kind of doubt it. Not in, in deed and not in heart. There will be no immoral people. You know, uh, to think with lust in your heart, Jesus said, it's like com- committing adultery. I mean, that will not exist in heaven. Not, not only because maybe it's not going to be there, but because we wouldn't have the desire to do it anyway. Nothing that does not belong, everything that does not belong in heaven <laughs> will not be there. Because it, <laughs> that the hearts of the people who live in heaven are so in tune, so in love in God and His will and His desires. The only thing desired will be that which is pleasing to God. It doesn't matter what, what exists or what doesn't. It doesn't matter because what's there is will be desired completely and perfectly. Now in this body and the way this body is and how it desires sin and how it takes the spirit of uh, a, a saint to correct it. And a saint is a person who's governed by the power and the presence of the living God. That's what it takes in this life. And that life is going to be something different. In heaven there will be no sorcerers. There will be no demons, no afterlife, only eternal life. No contacting the dead because there will be no dead. The dead will be in the lake of fire. As, and as far as the living are concerned, God says it this way. And I've thought about how I would say it, but it would be best to say it with God's words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I mean, in my life, I have to say, nothing even comes close to the pain of losing someone. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I can't even express the pain I felt when I lost my dog. A dog is not like a person. A person exceeds a dog in like every level. It doesn't feel like that sometimes because we live in a sinful world. That'll be much more clear when we get to heaven. Just how perfect and how godlike and how wonderful a person is when they are perfectly godlike. I mean, we haven't really, we haven't experienced that yet. But losing anyone, a loved one, someone who's even born in sin, which we all are, it's a, it's a heartbreak that's incomprehensible, really. We, if you experienced it, you know. You know how painful that is. All, all we're saying right here is that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. I mean, the tears of death are past. Even if it's the fear of death to come, or it's more likely the, the death of a loved one. There will no longer be any mourning. No mourning over the dead. There, there's no separation from dead people anymore. Crying or pain, the first things have passed away. I don't know what that looks like exactly. I only know that this is true. Absolutely and perfectly true. So that means all the, all the anguish over death, all of it, is gone. In heaven there will be no idolaters. Why in the world would a person need an idol when they have the eternally existent true God who paid the ultimate and infinite price to prove his eternal love when they have him right there in, in their presence, seated on a throne, living in their heart, intimate, with the living God, loving God, and God loving us, why in the world would there be an idol? There won't. No idols in heaven. He says no idolaters, 
And he means no idolaters. Everyone who's there is not an idolater, but a lover of God. Now, I mean, right now, that you know, it's kind of beyond everything here. It's beyond our comprehension. It's no less true. It's perfectly true because it came from God. In heaven there will be no liars. This is the last one in the description. Get this. In the culture we're living right now, look at this. This is great. In heaven there will be no liars. For a person who really puts truth, you know, in first place, you know, some people put like feelings or sensitivity or compassion, you know, empathy, really, really important things. We don't all put the same things first, for good and for bad. Some people put truth really at the top. Some people put compassion at the top. For a person who puts truth like myself on the top of all things, and, and, and we all value compassion immensely, but put, for those of us who put truth on the top, when you read this, there's no liars in heaven. <laughs> this really motivates. You know, this is great. Only people who hate lying will be in heaven. I mean, just hate it to the point they will never do it again, ever, by the power of God. The truth shall set you free, Jesus said. Why would I be in bondage? Who would want to be in any kind of bondage or slavery to anything? And we're talking about sin right now. All gone, all gone. And heaven will be inhabited by people who truly enjoy their freedom and loathe bondage. In heaven, there will only be people who value their freedom so much they freely give themselves as slaves to an infinitely beneficent and loving creator who redeemed them. Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ. Freedom is what makes things happen in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, in, in, in the infinite, whatever it is out there. You know, It's going to be all light and all truth. No liars. And that's, those two are kind of synonyms in the New Testament. If it's light, it's not darkness. Darkness is where the lies are. But uh, the light reveals everything for what it is. And in heaven, it's all light. All the darkness is dissipated. It's gone. New heavens. The new heavens where there's only light. How would you like to live in only light and never sleep and never get tired? This is what God offers. Why would anyone say no to this? I can tell you that, and I will tell you that at the end of this. The main point is that redemption is total and complete. Freedom, it's freedom from corruption. No, nothing to corrupt, nothing to decay, nothing to, like, futile. Like, this is, why am I doing this? It's, going to have, it's only going to end in death anyway. Not existent. Death's been done away with. There is no death. Everything is worthwhile. And it's all for the glory of God. Verse 23 is where we started. This is where we are. And not only that, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? Because we are eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In the, in the New Testament, the, the idea of the body is this idea of this corrupting force. We are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. We are new people in Christ. I mean, Romans 6 and 7 into 8, I mean, just, and the whole of the New Testament is just talks about a new people, a new creation, set free from the bondage of death, set free into the glorious light of the Son of God, where we see clearly. But there's this part of us, it's crouching at the door, its desire is for us, this, this remaining sin. And it's, it's just, it's a, a byproduct because we haven't been perfected yet. But we're in the process. This is a true believer, that is. In redemption, our body becomes, in redemption, uh, at the judgment takes place, and we're in Christ, and we're just transformed completely. The body is, the, the old body is gone, it's done, it's part of the old heaven and the, the old earth, the new body is out of the new heaven and the new earth, and it's perfected. 
The soul is perfected, even if we die now, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And we're kind of like angels in that we're spirit beings. Don't underestimate angels. They are powerful, glorious creatures, not given a body. We're given a body. But we, we, we don't have that body when we die now, so we're, we're in spirit beings. Conscious, aware, more aware than we are now. And we're going to read about that in just a little bit. But at, at, the new, at the resurrection, after the great white throne, we're given a new body. That new body is glorious. And it's not crouching at the door. If anything, it's a perfect transmitter for God, for the Holy Spirit who brings to us Jesus Christ through eternal, who eternally resides in perfect peace and harmony within his people. Within his people. That's why when we're reading about the, the new Jerusalem, and there is the glory of God, and he is among his people. When we read that verse, Revelations 21 and verse 3, actually the word is, is, is best translated with Behold, the tabernacle of God is with God. I'm sorry. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with the people. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. With them in presence in the, in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. With them in the Holy Spirit dwelling and living within their heart. With his people. This is the glory of of eternal life. Not us, not even our perfection, but that God is there, present within us, before us, among us. I mean, it's just, it's all about God. It always has been. But sinful people can't see that. Concerning the eternal God, Paul said while preaching on Mars Hill, and this is the point. He did this in Acts 17, 24 through 30. Preaching on Mars Hill, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples with, with hands, made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man, very important verse, he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. I love the fact that he uses the word nation there by the inspiration of Almighty God. The nations happen at Babel. Every nation, we, we call it uh, race, it's not. There's one race there. One race because every person goes back to Adam. Many families within the one race, but one race. This is all because of sin, and I talked about that in the last episode. One man, one, and we all go back to that one man, according to God. Now, never mind what men said. Men are liars. Having, uh, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, which those boundaries remain the same ever since then. You know, Germany's Germany, Asia's Asia, Japan's Japan that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope like a blind man for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. You know, sin blinds. We don't know how to find God. And here's the verse in verse 28. For in him, it's saying that he's not far from us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, to men, that all people everywhere should repent, turn away from the ignorance and the wickedness of sin. That's what God is, that's what Paul is saying here. Look, they had many gods in Greece at that time. You know, he's making, known the un he's making known to them the unknown God. Who is this? Well, he's the one in whom we live and we move and we find our existence. 
We can't go from here to here to there without God. I know we all think we're in control of everything. And we have control issues are like really big in our culture. But the reality of it is, the hypocrisy of it is, we're not in control of anything. God gives us all things, like he gives us the five senses so we can find our way. And we're still, because of sin, you know, we, we, we don't get it. We don't get anything. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I mean, read through it. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? One and two. You know, where's the discerner of this age? Like, they don't exist. Because the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. That's an ignorance of the soul. It goes deeper than an, uh, a blindness of the eyes. If we were to understand the core of all core issues, we would have to focus on verse 28 that says, For in him we live and move, and we, we have our being, or our existence. Because this is what the issue is, do we see ourselves in control or God? Are we willing to accept the reality that we're really not in control? We don't keep the earth spinning. We don't keep it revolving around the sun. We don't keep our galaxy, our, our solar system, in going in its place in our galaxy, in that galaxy of the God. We're not in control of anything like that. And we're not even in control we're not even in control of the decisions we make, believe it or not, according to the Bible. We're in bondage to sin, and it controls us. Sinful men possess the notion that they are in control, and we're not. The, the significance by which we live out our existence, Paul declared personally in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20. I mean, this is really key. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. I have been crucified, put to death with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I mean, I'm alive in the flesh. I mean, there's a biological machine that's living, and there's a soul living in that machine that is alive. But he says, in the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, this is a complete transition of how one lives their life. One is with the perspective that I'm in control. I have to make my own decisions. I make my own way. And the other is faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's a whole different kind of existence. One, whether it's materialism or power or prestige, you know, and whatever the thing is that makes a person, the motivations of life, all of that's swept away. All swept away when a person becomes a new creature in Christ. Then he says, see, I've been put to death in Christ and I, I'm not even longer living. That old way doesn't exist anymore. But Christ lives in me now. And the life which I live now, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not in myself, but in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. How'd that happen? Well, we once saw that earning our way to heaven, if we believe in heaven, if we don't believe in heaven, that's a mute point. But if we believe in heaven, it's about working our way and not accepting the fact that I'm too sinful to work my way. So then I see Christ on the cross, and as Christ is on the cross, I see him taking my sins. And so all of that evil that's on me is placed on him. And then when he's raised from the dead, his new life, which he has, the good life, what he has had from eternity, that's placed on me. And so I now share in his life. The child of God, a child of God in reality, not saved by Christ in his own mind, deceived or self-deceived, but one who has been born again, who God regenerated in the heart so that he is a new person, a new creation. That such a person lives under a new covenant. He no longer thinks of himself as good, but, brought, but bought by the sufferings of Christ. He's an intimate relationship with Christ. First, 
by the offering of Christ. And that's in Hebrews where we read, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? Being sanctified. The person who's in intimate relationship with Christ is living a new life under a new covenant. What is that covenant? It's in verses 16 to 18, which says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. So the covenant is what God does, and he always keeps his covenant. We don't keep our part, but he always keeps his and that is, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be writing my laws on their heart. I'm going to be writing them in their minds. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. I'm loving them. And just the way they, now we live and move and, and exist in Him, even so His laws will be living in us. And that starts when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, the child of God has not one, but two realities going on in their conscience. First, the forgiveness of sins placed on Christ, and it's done, it's finished with that one sacrifice. Second, the reality of the indwelling Christ who is placing his laws on his mind and on his heart. On his mind and in his heart. This process will extend throughout eternity by an intimate relationship with the living Christ and God. This is eternal life. John 17, 3, that they might know you, intimately know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. When the author of Hebrews gets to chapter 12, he announces a new reality for the Christian by contrasting two mountains. The first is at the giving of the law. The second is Mount Zion where the law lives within our hearts. The first mountain, for you have not come to what may be touched. This is in Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. You have not... Come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. I mean, this is fear and trembling. This is a mountain that's shaking like you're in an earthquake. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This is the holiness of God. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, the second part is the glorious part. We started to read about it. and You can finish it in Revelation 21 about the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, Mount Zion. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable angels, amount of angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel he sacrificed through persecution, Cain killed him. He was a martyr. But Jesus' blood is worth a whole lot more than Abel's. Abel was, a, Abel was a sinner saved by grace. Jesus Christ saved Abel when he died on the cross. The author of Hebrews follows up the idea of the believer's comfort, which is received by the finished work of Christ, and the present reality of a relationship with him with a warning. And this, this is throughout Hebrews. It's really throughout the, the whole of the Bible. Why a warning? Because there are so many that are self-deceived. The first century authors of the New Testament were fully aware of Jesus' warnings. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's very important but the one who does the will of my father is in heaven words are cheap and when words are cheap they don't lead to heaven on that day many will many will say to me lord lord 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many one mighty works in your name? That should be holding us, stopping us short. Everyone who hears these words. There's a place of assurance of salvation for every true child of God. There's no true assurance. There's a false assurance for unbelievers. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. There's the knowing. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But he will say into that day to many, to many, not to few, to many, I never knew you. Depart from me. Horrible, horrible words. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why will Jesus say, depart from me? Because their relationship to Jesus wasn't real. It was only in their mind. It wasn't in their hearts. The law was never written on their mind or in their hearts. For this reason, they never really lived it out. Beginning in the heart and then into their behavior. And as a person matures, they become more aware of sin and they repent from more sin. And it's a life of repentance and turning away from sin. It's a life of maturing. For this reason, the warning always follows the comfort that belongs to only true believers. I'm going to close with this, but I want to understand, I want you to understand that the person who's a true believer has a severely acute conscience. And so we look at ourselves and we say, I'm a sinner, you know, am I, am I really saved? Am I, I continue to sin? Well, the sinner, the, the Christian, when he lives long enough, he can look back and he can see, or should see, a significant change in his life. And the real significance is the sealing that three times talked about in the New Testament, the sealing with the Spirit, which is bound by a relationship with Christ. And that relationship gives the greatest assurance. Not looking so much at changes that take place in their life, which changes should, if you're, if you're studying the Word, if you're, reading, if you're reading the Word, if you're praying as you should. Prayer is a big part. Big, big, big part. People who don't pray can't count on a whole lot of assurance, at least in the way it's supposed to come. And the assurance of God is gracious and gives His presence, you know, it doesn't really give it through without the Word and without prayer. I don't even want to make it sound that way because it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> but, uh, these last verses I'm going to close with, verses 25 to 29, the warning from Hebrews chapter 12, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So they're, they're on earth, and he's in the heavens, and he's coming down on the mountain, and those people with all that fear and with all that trembling and smoke, smoke and shaking in the earth and all of that took place and fire... They still didn't get it, and they still didn't repent. That's, that's a big warning. Now, what he's saying here is if, if they didn't repent, if they didn't escape, and God is he's speaking to them on earth, how much more will he reject those who warn from, from heaven itself? The Holy Spirit come down, and has given an awareness of Christ and his plan of salvation in the gospel, made it much more clear to us. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And believe me, when the tribulation finally does come, and people know about 666 and the Antichrist, all that's coming. Don't kid yourself. Don't let anyone deceive you. God's word is clear and it's true and it's practical and it's specific. Those days are coming. And even now he's speaking from heaven of these things because Christ has gone back to heaven. You read the gospels, he's risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is not hidden in some corner. It hasn't been. People don't want to hear it anymore and they shut their ears to it and they're told not to hear it and they don't listen. But it's been throughout the earth. This phrase, yet once more, 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. We read about that. And this heavens and earth, they're going out of existence. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If you're listening to this, my, my words to you are with the most the sincerest compassion that I have as a person who's walked with Christ for nearly 50 years. Over 50 years. My, 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 my concern is that you walk in the truth, that you walk without doing what these Israelites did at the giving of the law. They trembled in fear and they were afraid, but they had no repentance in their heart. They just did not accept the fact that they were sinners. When revival enters a person's heart, they don't say, I'm blessed of God. They say, is there forgiveness for me? Is there love for me? That love was hanging on a cross in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to see love? Look at the cross. You know why he's there? He's there because you're a sinner. He's there because I'm a sinner. He's there because every man ever born to Adam, all, all, Paul said, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not, not some, all. How do you know? All people die. And a penalty for sin is death. Are you going to die? You're a sinner and you're a sinner who can't save yourself. For this reason, Christ came. For this reason, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's it. I didn't make that up. It's written down in a book that's 3,500 years old. Thereabouts. It's, it's written, it's never been changed, it's unalterable, it can be translated into different language and it remains the word of God, unalterable. Translations being what they are, it doesn't matter, you read it in English, scholars, God has provided scholars to make it what it is, the word of God. And the word of God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For this reason, Christ died on a cross, and suffered the pain from God. Not the nails in his hands and his feet, but, but the suffering that God puts on sinners that it will take them an eternity because they, they won't repent. Now's the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Give your life to Christ today. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for my hearers. I pray for those who are in the kingdom that they would open their hearts and understand the responsibility that is ours to fulfill your will and your law in our hearts even now. Go into all the world and make disciples. We do that by being a living example we, don't, we do that by knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing it with others for their salvation and for their growth. Make your, your people obedient. Make us all obedient to you. We who have come into an intimate relationship with the living Lord, Jesus Christ. For those who are standing outside, God forbid those who are self-deceived and thinking themselves in when they're not, Bring a new awareness, a new awareness of your presence. And may they humble themselves and offer themselves as wicked sinners to a holy God. And may you enter their heart and your mind and know salvation in, in, in real time. And may they find the peace that they long for and the joy and the presence of the living God. 
I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.